This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, offering education, health care, and the opportunity to achieve career success since 1867. Information at go.wvu.edu slash forward. Welcome to the Legislature Today, I'm Randy Yoey. There was a lengthy, emotional, life-and-death debate in the House of Delegates today over the pros and cons of euthanasia and medically-assisted suicide. Medically-assisted suicide is already illegal in West Virginia, but now lawmakers in the House propose adding that to the state constitution. House Joint Resolution 28 would not prohibit the withholding or withdrawing of life-sustaining treatment as requested by the patient or the patient's decision-maker in accordance with state law, so as long as the intention is not to kill the patient. Delegate Anitra Hamilton, a Democrat from Monongalia County and a health care worker, was against the resolution, citing concerns over losing medical respect for a patient's rights. No doctor can help someone die. And I mean, honestly, um, it's illegal. Um, and and we, not, we cannot determine somebody's life, but individually, we all make that choice. And that choice has to be respected in relation to all things that we do. So, you know, I'm not understanding the point of this resolution because it's not practiced. Um, and, and it's not a practice in West Virginia and our healthcare systems um, do uphold this. But I do support the notion that individuals have the right to direct their own life. And as medical care workers, we do not assist in taking someone's life. Also a healthcare worker, Delegate Heather Tully, a Republican from Nicholas County, supported the amendment. She noted the clause that agrees on patient choices with the medical intention stipulated not to kill the patient. I can tell you with the West Virginia Healthcare Decisions Act, um, honoring someone's living will or following uh, their leads of their medical power of attorney, when those decisions were made at the bedside, the intention was not to kill the patient. It was usually to alleviate suffering or to allow a natural progression of a disease course or an injury to occur. Delegate Scott Heckard, a Republican from Wood County, was among several lawmakers who spoke of loved ones and dear friends suffering medical situations leading to contemplating the possibility of suicide. My dad was incapacitated in bed. He asked me to end it. And I told him I couldn't do it. I think this resolution is good for the people that aren't able to make decisions for themselves. And I think we should support it. From what I understand, nothing like this happening in the state of West Virginia. I believe it's illegal. So there's no reason why every single thing, I and mean, we're going to start having 20 or 30 constitutional amendments if we, if we do this about every issue. You know, what we don't have a constitutional amendment about, what we're not giving the people of the state of West Virginia the option about whether they want to enshrine in our Bill of Rights is whether a woman has the right to choose whether to have an abortion. As noted, medical-assisted suicide is already illegal in West Virginia. 
Nevertheless, House Joint Resolution 28 was adopted with an 87 to 9 vote and now goes to the Senate for consideration. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yowie. The Senate focused on voting today with three out of five bills relating to voting or voter ID. Brianna Heaney has that story. Two of the bills require the DMV to provide images of certain individuals to the Secretary of State for voter ID purposes and cancel voter registration records for individuals that are no longer residents of the state. The third bill, Senate Bill 622, changes the time period of voting inactivity for removal from voter registration. Currently, a voter can go four years without voting or updating voter information before being considered inactive. This bill moves it to two years. For example, if a voter didn't vote in one presidential election, they could be ineligible to vote in the next presidential election. The bill is a use-it-or-lose-it voting law. If voters don't vote for more than two years, they get flagged. Sponsor of the bill, Eric Tarr, a Republican from Putnam County, says the bill is to make sure voters are not registered to vote in two different precincts and to verify voter eligibility. Here we've been working on purging our voter rolls quite a bit because we had, I remember correctly, I think the first purge we did 400,000 people who were not eligible to vote in West Virginia who had voter registration. So this bill is about making sure that people who show up to vote are people who are eligible to vote. Senator Mike Wolfel, a Democrat from Cabell County, voted for the bill, but said at first he was skeptical it could be another attempt at voter suppression. The bill is similar to a law passed in Ohio that led to a Supreme Court case and nearly 150,000 Ohio voters being purged from the state roll. I feel like this is just a matter of efficiency, making sure that the records are tight, the voting records are updated, and I don't think it's intended to exclude people from voting or deter people from voting. Although that is the trend around the country in a lot of legislatures, and I don't, and I don't like it. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. Whether or not to teach middle schoolers about fentanyl and overdose-reversing medicine sparked discussion in the House Education Committee today, while the Senate Education modified a House bill on special education. Chris Schultz has more. Titled Lakin's Law, House Bill 5540 would mandate fentanyl prevention and awareness education, as well as use of naloxone, in grades 6 through 12. The bill sparked more than a half hour of discussion and debate in the House Education Committee Wednesday, with many delegates expressing concern about whether it was appropriate to teach sixth graders how to administer opioid-reversing medication. State Superintendent Michelle Blatt told the committee that drug prevention has been a focus of health education in schools for years and reflects the lived reality of many students in the state, even in middle school. Um, a lot of the surveys that we do with the, um, the Safe and Drug-Free School Survey, students start talking about as early as 6th and 7th grade, you know, being exposed to it or having the opportunity to use it. So I, I don't think it's too early to share the messaging of the dangers and the harms of it. She compared training for the use of naloxone products, such as Narcan, to first aid and CPR. And, I mean, sadly, the world we live in now, it may be a matter of the student learns to use it because they're going to have to use it on mom or dad at home when they can't wake up their parents or something. <clears throat> the bill was amended to include heroin and other opioids in the new mandated education and now goes to the House for its consideration. With the session moving into its second half, the Senate Education Committee focused on one Senate bill and two House bills Thursday morning. 
House Bill 4860, which originally freed general education teachers from documenting special education accommodations, was hotly debated when it passed through the House Education Committee. Bill's sponsor, Delegate Elliot Pritt, a Republican from Fayette County and middle school teacher, called existing documentation requirements onerous, while critics of the bill raised concern that it would open the door for shirking of legal responsibilities to special education students. Thursday morning, the Senate Education Committee changed the bill to reintroduce some documentation requirements for all teachers. Pritt was on hand to approve of the changes. In Fayette County and many other counties right now, we're required to complete just an onerous amount of daily paperwork to prove that we're already doing what we're required to do by law in the first place. So um, I spoke with uh, Chairwoman Grady and have agreed with the changes she's proposed to the bill. It still equals the desired outcome of less onerous paperwork, but still meets, I guess, um, addresses the concerns that some people had about there being no docu daily documentation. So, The bill now heads to the full Senate for consideration. For the legislature today, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. West Virginia State University is one of the state's two HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. Today was WVSU Day at the Capitol, where school leadership is working the shoe leather, as they say, to see big dollar budget legislation passed. In looking at all its academic departments, West Virginia State is the only HBCU in the country without an agriculture program. Yet the legislature is now considering Governor Jim Justice's budget proposal to create and centralize a $50 million agriculture department at State. University President Eric Cage says the school is ready. As an 1890 land-grant institution, we have a lot of expertise in agricultural research, education and extension. We'll be able to marry that expertise with the expertise of the West Virginia Department of Agriculture. This facility will give us an opportunity to, one, serve as a home for our forthcoming School of Agriculture, but also allow us to collaborate with the Department of Agriculture, providing opportunities for our students and ultimately opportunities for, for West Virginia. West Virginia State University is among all state colleges and universities who have been diligently preparing for the July 1st enactment of the campus carry law, allowing students, teachers, and staff to legally carry firearms in designated areas. Cage says it's vital that everyone on campus and visiting campus know the campus carry rules and restrictions. We want to make sure that we have spaces available so that um, uh, weapons can be securely stored in those places where they are not permitted. So we're looking at the policies again to make sure that the policies are clear and also consistent with what the requirements of the law. We're also focusing on making sure that we're going to put together an education campaign because we want to make sure that every member of our community knows what the law requires so that we can ensure that we are keeping our community safe. President Cage says Campus Carry is all about maintaining a secure and safe learning environment. The Senate unanimously passed SB 571, creating an Advanced Energy and Economic Corridor Authority for Corridor H. Curtis State spoke with Economic Development Secretary Mitch Carmichael about the importance of Corridor H to the state. Before that, though, they talked about some breaking news regarding a steel plant in the northern panhandle. Secretary Carmichael, I wanted to talk about Corridor H, um, but I also th think we should use this opportunity to, to talk about the, the kind of breaking news that we had this morning about Cleveland Cliffs and uh, the announcement that it's going to idle the plant in Weirton. That affects 950 workers, obviously has some uh, 
implications for the state and local economy. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, uh, as the reporting is uh, very clear, I think, that um, uh, the 10 mill plant that Cleveland Cliffs had operated there for many, many, many years uh, was involved in a trade dispute, and uh, uh, the International Trade Commission ruled that their uh, objections to the policy were not uh, uh, sufficient to carry uh, the necessary tariffs. Uh, and so, as a result of that decision, uh, Cleveland Cliffs made the business decision to uh, to uh, lay off those workers. And uh, let me just say, uh, Curtis, our heart goes out for those workers, and we will immediately engage uh, to uh, try to find new jobs, new opportunities for those uh, employees, as well as to create uh, great uh, you know, new adventures and new jobs and opportunities in that area. I've been in West Virginia for about three years now, and it just seemed like for, for the longest time there, it was good news after good news after good news. You had uh, Nucor and uh, Form Energy, Berkshire Hathaway, Green Power, among many others. Right. And this, this kind of, uh, it, it, it seems like it goes the other way a little bit. What sort of, you know, break glass in case of emergency tool do you have yeah. to, to help uh, address this? Well, we have a rapid response team that will immediately deploy to the site. We're already working with, they're represented by the United Steel Workers Union. Uh, we're working with them. We're also engaged with the business uh, opportunities that are considering that area for future development and uh, see if we can accelerate those decisions. So uh, the governor's very adamant. I'm uh, sort of the point person for making sure that those opportunities exist for our citizens. And whenever uh, the business cycle uh, comes through and uh, you know disrupts a, uh, a current employer, uh, there's probably, our heart just breaks for those situations. But we also know we have tools and opportunities and funds that we can immediately go in and address the situation and try with everything in us to make sure that there's uh, those employees have uh, all the benefits that come with uh, layoffs as a result uh, from a, a work shuttage, shuttering or uh, new opportunities. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, we're going to try to make lemonade uh, out of these lemons. Well, I, I see two problems right away. Uh, one is that, that it, 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 the employees are being offered either transfers or, or severance. Well, if they transfer, they may have to leave the state, and that, of yeah. course, worsens the, the problem of population loss. And, and others, if they can't find uh, new jobs, that worsens the problem of workforce participation. Yeah. So. Uh, it, What's what's kind of like the best hope here? Yeah, well, it's never good, obviously, when a when a business shuts down, and probably uh, I have as much experience in uh, the uh, the negative impacts of a job uh, of a plant shuttering as anyone. I'm from Jackson County, and when the uh, aluminum plant uh, shuttered, Century Aluminum Century Aluminum shuttered, you know, so many people, my friends, neighbors, were affected. So I know the personal level. Now, at the business level, uh, our job is to create opportunities. And, uh, you know, we have a new uh, uh, modern plant emerging from the former Weir Steel site uh, with Form Energy. It's a fantastic facility, and uh, they're conducting job interviews all the time. That's a 750 employee uh, facility, will be. And we're talking with many other customers who have a unique interest in that Weirton uh, Northern Panhandle area. So uh, we're going to redouble our efforts and uh, approach that like our hair's on fire. We know that we need 
uh, to get these uh, jobs created quickly. And, uh, uh, you know, I want to, uh, we shouldn't let it uh, go without saying that Cleveland Cliffs has been a great employer for the area for many years there. Uh, it's unfortunate that they've made this decision, uh, but it's a business cycle. Uh, we're going to do everything we can to work with the International Trade Commission to see if the decision can be reversed. Short of that, we're going to find new jobs and new opportunities for uh, that area. Well, it certainly is possible that that site could be uh, repurposed for oh. something. You mentioned Century Aluminum. That's where Berkshire Hathaway Energy is Absolutely, going. Absolutely, Curtis. And uh, as you mentioned at the start of your segment, we've had a ton of success here in West Virginia with recruiting uh, world-class companies. And so uh, we think we know how to do this. Uh, I think it's been validated that we know how to do it, and we're going to immediately engage. We've already, we're already talking to uh, uh, potential employers for that area that see uh, a great workforce that's being go going to be displaced that can immediately transition to new opportunities. Uh, and so uh, I hope that the, your listeners and uh, everyone in West Virginia hears from uh, the administration, the Governor Justice Administration, and working with Senator Capito, Senator Manchin, uh, that we are engaged, we are working, and we are uh, committed to finding new opportunities for this area. Okay. Well, so going back to our original uh, purpose here was to talk a little bit about Corridor H and its significance to the state. I mean, just to kind of set, set it up a little bit, yeah. uh, Corridor H is part of the Appalachian Development Highway System, uh, which is uh, part of the uh, Appalachian Regional Commission. They yeah. were both kind of created in the, the 1960s, originally as an anti-poverty program, but I think uh, it, it, I think it's fair to say that, that in the years since um, that, that the ARC's mission has uh, has gone more in the direction of economic development, workforce development, um, yeah. a, a job training, education, that, th those sort of things. But Corridor H is uh, it is a 130 mile or so highway from Weston to Wardensville, approximately, and um, and it's almost finished. There's two two little segments that uh, that are currently under construction. Um, how do you see the significance of, of Corridor H to to West Virginia and also that particular part of the state and opening it up to to, to tourism and and other kinds of economic development? Well, I think you framed that question perfectly because it does open up a, an incredible area for economic development in West Virginia. The terrain that this uh, Corridor H traverses is perfect for economic development. The proximity to the uh, the uh, Northern Virginia, Washington D.C. marketplace, Southern Maryland, uh, is also uh, prominent in uh, economic development, uh, uh, you know, portals. Uh, because when we talk about the advantages West Virginia has and the way we're able to win so many transactions right now, post-COVID, it really is about geographic location, proximity to your suppliers and to your customers for a business. And so that area with uh, uh, river, rail, and particularly rail, and uh, the highway access will now be just uh, prime economic development area. That's, it's been held back by difficult terrain, a hard accessibility, uh, but now that's all changing and it is really going to ignite uh, economic growth in this area. And you're correct also in that the ARC uh, has a sort of transitioned from an anti-poverty component to creating economic development to make uh, oneself reliant. Uh, 
and that's uh, occurring in West Virginia in leaps and bounds, and this area needs to be developed, and this corridor will be vital to that uh, expansion. Well, uh, there's a... Uh, you might say there's almost near unanimity, it's a hard word to say sometimes, <laughs> uh, in the legislature uh, in support of, of uh, developing Corridor H, uh, the Senate passed um, SB 571, which creates a, uh, an, an energy and economic development corridor for Corridor H, uh, passed the Senate unanimously. I mean, you were the former Senate president. I yeah. don't know how, I don't know if that happened every day, but <laughs> um, but, but there are a couple of, of, of kind of lingering issues. One is that, that uh, currently the road basically stops at the state line. It doesn't yeah. go all the way to Interstate 81 in Virginia, so it doesn't directly connect um, the Northern Virginia like you said in the DC metropolitan area uh, with an improved road so that still has to be addressed and then also there's a, a somewhat controversial segment from Parsons to Davis where where some of the the, the citizens locally uh, want to take wanted to take a different route than what yeah. the, the division of highways would prefer so like how do you address those two things yeah well, first, you're absolutely correct in that the word unanimity and the legislature rarely go together. <laughs> so, uh, but there are some issues that unite uh, all uh, factions, and one of those is economic development. And uh, to get a, a unanimous vote on uh, the, the chartering, essentially, of a, a quarter H commission uh, that brings together various points of view to uh, embrace the public's input for the road and the construction of it and so forth. And uh, to the extent that uh, Northern Virginia and others uh, do not complete their corridor, I think they do so at their own peril. Uh, West Virginia is uh, uh, committed, has been, and will continue to be to the development of that, uh, opening up that area of our state with uh, great uh, highway access and that will spur economic development. And so uh, that will, uh, I, I feel confident that uh, the other states will eventually see the wisdom of that. And then uh, the route itself uh, will always, there will always be controversy about any particular route. The data will support the decision. And uh, I feel, uh, and I'm positive that that data-driven metrics uh, will pick select the best route and, and it's my understanding it's basically been selected uh, and so uh, uh, you know I think it's it works best when we make data de driven decisions rather than politically based uh, you know uh, decisions well we only have about a minute left but I did want to ask because uh, Senator Clements who who couldn't join us today unfortunately when we last uh, spoke to him he said that that there was uh, some desire to extend corridor H from I-79 at Weston all the way west to the Ohio River. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you know about those efforts? Well, uh, you know, we continue to evaluate various road uh, corridors in our state, and it, we've got a great highway system. I mean, our uh, connectivity to the world is is pretty. Uh, it's pretty good. Others are seeing that, uh, as you uh, many of these businesses that are locating here have have witnessed that. So, uh, but I'm all for uh, continued expansion and uh, I want to thank you for your time and, and uh, thank Charlie Clemens for the work that he's done on this great uh, project. Uh, well, Mitch Carmichael, thank you so much for joining us today. Pre appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for spending this time with us. Catch the legislature today, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting covers the session daily in our radio news program, West Virginia Morning, and on our news site at wvpublic.org. 
We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and the Senate on the West Virginia Channel. I'm Randy Yoey. For everyone here at WVPB, thanks for joining us and have a great evening. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, offering education, health care, and the opportunity to achieve career success since 1867. Information at go.wvu.edu slash forward.